This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Wells Fargo has certainly had a tumultuous last two years. Various banking errors and issues of fraud have put it in the eyes of regulators. And now the CFPB has levied a $1 billion fine for all of those misdeeds. And some experts following the sector say that it may not be enough. We delve into that part of the story with David Zaring, who is an associate professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School. He joins me in the studio. And joining us on the phone is Christopher Peterson, who's a senior fellow at the Consumer Federation of America and also a law professor at the University of Utah, who is also, by the way, a former special advisor to the office of the director of the CFPB. And also joining us on the phone, uh, Cindy Scapani, who is a professor of business administration and professor of Business Law at the University of Michigan. David, as always, great seeing you. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Christopher, Cindy, great to have you joining us on the phone today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, I, I will go around the table and just uh, get your reactions to this fine. Uh, David, I'll start with you. It's a big fine, and it's really interesting to see it coming from the uh, CFPB itself, which since uh, the acting director, Mick Mulvaney, has joined the agency, has literally uh, not done a single enforcement action uh, during his tenure. And um, and then on Friday, it came out with the, the largest fine the CFPB has ever announced. Uh, so I think it's a pretty interesting and dramatically different approach to regulation than the kind of regulation we've seen before from that director. Cindy? Yeah, I agree. It is a it's a um, big number, and it does reflect a, a change in in attitude. I think um, I think it's a, a good message to be sent. Although uh, it is a billion dollar fine, I understand that five hundred million of it, though, um, was assessed by the Comptroller of Currency, and so and that amount is credited against the billion dollars. So effectively, it's a five hundred million dollar fine. Chris. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a positive step. I mean, it's a you know it's a good case. There the, there were definitely illegal activities. I do think that there are some things to push back on, though, a little bit about it. So, I mean, first off, it's not the biggest case the CFPB has done. It's just the biggest fine. Um, there were other cases, including especially the case against J.P. Morgan Chase, that was a much larger case involving J.P. Morgan Chase's credit card receivables, where customers received much much more than this in refunds and and forgiven debts for illegal credit card practices. I also think that it's important to add that this case was not opened under Acting Director Mulvaney. This right. case has been in the pipeline and was originally opened by Director Cordray and prosecuted by his staff. So I think that the, it's, although it's a good sign, I mean, what this really means is that the, the Trump administration didn't stop the case. It's not that they actually, you know, in a certain sense, um, uh, brought it themselves. There are also some changes in, in the way that the um, restitution in the case is administered. It's a little bit inside baseball, but I think there are some important um, uh, uh, considerations associated with that we can talk about later if there's time. Was there an expectation in your mind, Chris, with the fact that you're talking about basically two different administrations within the CFPB uh, that that this could have been potentially put to the sideline? 
Well, it certainly could have been. There have been some other cases that have been put to the sideline. Most notably, there were a series of cases against uh, payday lenders, online tribal payday lenders that were being, you know, making 900% interest rate loans from an Indian reservation in ways that the CFPB had previously said was illegal. The CFPB had sued those companies and had been, you know, working against those companies for over, you know, several years. And uh, without any explanation, the the CFPB dropped those cases. no reason, no, no no recognition of the fact that it happened. So it's possible that that could have happened here against Wells Fargo. One thing that was different is that well, the Wells Fargo case, that's actually something that the president tweeted about. Yeah. Uh, so he, the president kind of got on record about that, uh, whereas some of the other cases the president did not. Well, so, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. I, I think also one thing that may have, uh, you know, stiffened the CFPB's fine was the, as Cindy said, the existence of another regulator, the OCC, um, is continuing to do enforcement actions and uh, regu- uh, you know actively police banks and um, it was a sort of co-equal equal partner in this enforcement action and that may have uh, led the bureau to keep on with a case that it might have otherwise given up on. Well, Cindy, I've seen a, a few reports in the last few days that have actually said that maybe the one billion dollar fine wasn't enough. You know, I think. That's somewhat fair, and one of the reports that I read is that Wells Fargo is going to be saving $3.7 billion in the latest round of tax cuts, so $1 billion is just a little bit off their windfall that they're already getting. So it's hard to hard to tell. I mean, the number is big. It's hit the press. Uh, people know about it. Um, but it's hard to figure out what the right balancing act is as to whether it's enough or if you go too far, you certainly don't want to um, execute the death penalty and then uh, have innocent uh, bystanders harmed by all of that. So it's a tough balance. Well, David, there's, I mean, we've, we've seen a change of leadership. New CEO obviously happened uh, several months back. Uh, what else do you think from a leadership perspective may need to change? Do they need to look at the board of directors uh, of Wells Fargo? Well, that's changing a little bit, too, and uh, that's also a regulatory required change. The Federal Reserve is making the, uh, you know, a couple, three members of the board change over the next uh, few years. The um, the agencies in this enforcement action reserve the right to go and ask uh, Wells Fargo, which I think means demand that Wells Fargo change its uh, board of directors. Yeah. Um, and so it really seems like with this enforcement action and with the last one that um, – that people are really worried about the top leadership of Wells Fargo. One thing that this enforcement action is also supposed to do, and this is really hard to implement, is that it's trying to get uh, to middle management as well. And so um, in addition to the fine, the bank has uh, promised to do a better job of supervising the way that it handles its employees in the auto loan and home mortgage areas. And if the agencies stay on top of that, that might be the way to bring lasting change. But um, the devil there is always in the details and in the execution. Well, and Cindy, that goes to, to culture. And that's something that we've talked about a lot on this show in various forms. You know, you, you, co- companies are so worried about the culture of the people that they're bringing in in the first place. They want to make sure that they're a right, uh, the right fit. But obviously, you have to look at the overall culture and mindset of some of these companies, including the banking industry, that kind of have... have you know, well, it led us to the financial crisis a decade ago, and I think some people are still surprised that 10 years later we're still seeing instances like this. I agree. Culture is huge in all of this, and the culture has to start from the top, and it has to be executed all the way through. 
Um, one thing this settlement also does is it puts responsibility on the board for making sure everything happens. Um, I think maybe that's an attempt at getting at the culture at the top. But the key is you really have to have folks with strong ethical backbones in place, and then you have to have um, processes in place to avoid the temptation to uh, test those backbones. I, I want to ask both you and Chris, and I, I've mentioned this with David in the past when he's been here. The, the, Chris, the, the, the concern of many consumers, people that may have been involved in this and, and other instances, are you know, what are the, obviously there are a lot of monetary penalties that come forward, and a lot of people have suggested whether or not we need to start looking at criminal penalties for the people that are involved in these, especially in the managerial roles moving forward, because you have a lot of people that are wondering, okay, can can the people that are the C-suite for Wells Fargo not have known what was going on? What is your thoughts on, on the potential of criminal prosecutions moving forward? Generally speaking, I think that we need to have more criminal accountability in the financial services sector. Uh, I, I, whether this is the right case for that or perhaps the case that um, preceded it, I mean, you know, Wells Fargo's had a bunch of these enforcement actions. Yeah. You know, everyone will recall that they got caught uh, creating millions of fake bank accounts. Um, I think that there, it strikes me that there, that it's highly likely that there were, if not C-suite people, certainly people high up, higher up in the, in the management of the bank that had awareness that this was happening. And that strikes me as something that could rise to the level of a criminally indictable fraud and could be provable. And you could get that through a jury, I suspect. Um, this one, a little bit tougher, I think, to bring criminal charges for some of these kinds of practices. Right, right. Um, but Less. I mean, it's all part of a, a, a long-standing pattern or practice of, of, of problems at this bank. I mean, there were mortgage servicing violations. The CFPB got them in a big uh, settlement for their private student loan debt collection or servicing, then the bank account scandal. And really, this should probably be thought of as two separate cases, the, the packing of extra and unnecessary insurance premiums into uh, auto loans and also the rate lock um, uh, provisions for mortgages. Those are really two separate cases. Uh, this is happening again and again at the bank. It's time for significant accountability. I do think that the the billion-dollar fine, frankly, for uh, for a bank of this size, uh, one of the largest money center banks in the world, is really not a significant, a sufficient deterrent, uh, and that there needed to be additional um, uh, uh, sanctions. I also think, too, we still haven't talked about whether or not the customers are going to actually get their money back associated right. with this case. Cindy, your thoughts? Um, I agree. I think there needs to be a lot more personal accountability. And the folks at the top need to not only be paying attention to results, um, they need to figure out how those results are achieved. And when things are too good to be true, then they probably aren't. And so when they start seeing all of this extra money from all of these fees, they, may, they really should be looking into how that, uh, that money is acquired. Chris, it, with your background and, and, and involvement in the past with the CFPB, take us through that process of of what happens with the money that is actually brought in on a fine and, and how that is distributed, how that is, is parsed out. Sure. So there are two different types of awards to keep in mind here. First would be fines, and then second would be restitution. 
for fines, different administrative agencies have different statutory rules that require them to put the fines in different places. For most federal agencies, if you have a fine, the fine just goes back into the general federal revenue of the United States. So it just gets turned over to the Treasury Department. The CFPB has a special fund that was created by the Dodd-Frank Act called the Civil Money Penalty Fund, and that money goes into a, a essentially a bank account where it waits to be awarded to victims of other consumer scams where the defendant in that case is insolvent. And so the money is eventually given to other consumers in other cases where um, uh, the consumers don't get any compensation because the, the wrongdoer doesn't have any money left. And if there's money left over, then the CFPB can uh, task that, uh, give it to, um, you spend it on consumer education and non-advocacy-based um, you know, benefits for consumers. It, but that's only if there's money left over because they can't find victims of insolvent defense. That's all for fines. Right. But for restitution, there are different strategies for trying to make sure that the customers get their money back. And this is a, a place where, in this particular Wells Fargo case, there's been a real departure. So if you look at um, all of the previous CFPB enforcement cases, generally speaking, the CFPB announces a specific number, a dollar amount, for how much restitution is going to be given back to the customers for to, to make them whole for the illegal practices. In this case, they did not do that. It's a very significant change. Here they just announced a big fine, which is great for headlines, but that doesn't mean that the customers that had to pay extra fees for their rate lock or maybe didn't get a rate lock and had a higher interest rate on their home mortgage or all the back insurance premiums that they shouldn't have had to pay because they weren't required to actually purchase additional insurance for their auto loans. This doesn't mean that those customers are getting that money back necessarily, and there's not a dollar amount that they've specified. Now, the, the order does order the bank to give to you know, provide restitution to the customers, but the, the language of the agreement is very different than past CFPB practices and gives a lot more latitude and discretion to the bank in, in terms of how to do that. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are joined uh, in studio by David Zaring of the Wharton School, uh, Christopher Peterson, who's a law professor at the University of Utah, and uh, also a senior fellow at the Consumer Federation of America, and also by Cindy Scapani uh, of the University of Michigan. Your comments and your thoughts about Wells Fargo are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at Biz Radio 111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. David, I think the, the other interesting piece to it is involving the consumers is the fact that you wonder how much injury there has been to Wells Fargo as a business because of all this. Obviously, a lot of people were mad as all of these entities played out. But we really haven't heard definitive proof, uh, I, I believe, of customers that have left. People that you know are no longer doing banking. We've heard some entities that have done uh, have ended banking. Uh, City of Philadelphia, I believe, had a relationship with Wells Fargo regarding pensions, and they have pulled that out. So that's really the area where we really have heard that. Not necessarily uh, so much on the consumer side. Yes, I think that's right. Some state and local government entities said they'd try to take their various sorts of business that they were doing with Wells Fargo elsewhere, and. There's no doubt the bank's hurting, the stock price is hurting, the you know the fines have really uh, cut into its profitability in in some sense. But it's also really hard to change your bank. You know you're used to having everything go to your accounts, your bills paid through, 
uh, your you know your regular utility bills paid through um, whoever your current bank is. And so you know once uh, customers are locked into a bank, they often find it hard to go down the street and 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 go somewhere else. And I think certainly Wells Fargo seems to be benefiting from that phenomenon. That um, once you're in. And no matter how mad they make you, uh, it, it's often not worth it to, to change things. And in this case, uh, the customers have a, who are directly hurt by this have a reason to complain. Uh, I think um, the you know, calculation is they lost about 1000 bucks um, each on these uh, you know, wrongly uh, imposed insurance requirements uh, for, the, uh, for the auto loans. Um, so you know, that's real money for most people. And um, uh, you know, you'd think that uh, if if uh, losing a thousand bucks that you shouldn't have lost to your bank won't make you change who you bank with, then then nothing will. Cindy. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think also some of these consumers, especially the ones that were impacted by the auto insurance uh, issues, they they aren't necessarily. Uh, sophisticated consumers. They may be consumers living more on the edge. Right. And I think it's much more difficult for those folks to go and find other banks and to realize when they should and then have enough uh, financial wherewithal to do it. But I guess a lot of people, Cindy, have this expectation that, uh, that you know, if you are doing business with a bank, that the bank is decidedly trying to obviously manage your money, whatever that type of account you may have, manage your money in the best way. But to a degree, they have an expectation that they're also looking out for you, that you're not going to have a significant loss of money. And I guess to a degree, that's something that, uh, that, that maybe is a misconception anymore. I think that's right. And I think um, consumers need to realize that uh, it's buyer beware and you need to be paying close attention to um, what's in your interest because the, the bankers are paying attention to what's in theirs. Chris? Yeah, I agree with all these comments. Adding to David's point about the transaction costs of switching your bank account being high, I think that's exactly right. But the other problem is that the potential upside benefit of switching your bank account is very speculative and uncertain. There's no guarantee that after you go through the hassle of switching your bank to some other, to a new bank, that that new bank or credit union is actually going to provide better, more reliable services than the current bank that you already have. So you have a very certain and high cost in terms of time and, and, and energy and effort in switching the bank, and no real guarantee that the new bank's going to do a better job over the long term. I mean, Wells Fargo has had some big scandals, but there are a lot of other banks who have had scandals as well. And I think that uh, you know, some of the smaller banks that haven't been in the headlines, well, they're not even subject to CFPB supervision and enforcement in the first place. So you would just be leaving uh, a, a bank that's, that's you know, had some scandals going to another bank that's not even being audited for scandals. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Talking on the phone with Christopher Peterson of the University of Utah and also Senior Fellow at the Consumer Federation of America, Cindy Scapani of the University of Michigan, and David Zaring here of the Wharton School. Uh, this becomes, because of the fact, David, that this is such a well known and, and highly visible bank, it makes me wonder whether the, the amount that has been charged the $1 billion, and obviously part of that is the comptroller of the currency, part of that is the CFPB, if to a degree, and again, we may have to wait to see if this is playing out, whether or not we will see any shift in the mindset of the CFPB moving forward, because as you mentioned, this is the first time that the CFPB has really been linked to any kind of fine or enforcement action on an entity since the new administration took place. 
yeah, since uh, uh, acting director Mulvaney took over from, um, you know, the former director uh, Cordray, who was an Obama-era appointee, he yeah. held on, and then the CFPB was doing enforcement actions, and then he left, and since then, this is the only thing we've seen. So because this is the only thing we've seen, and, and as uh, Chris said, there are some cases that the CFPB has dropped, I don't expect to see a lot of enforcement of this type going forward. There are some kinds of enforcement that the director, the acting director, uh, has said he might be interested in pursuing, and so far we haven't seen a lot of action along those lines. But um, I think that uh, it's less likely that we'll see sort of large incumbent banks like Wells Fargo pay this kind of fine. And without wanting to generalize too much, sometimes when one bank is uh, busted for its practices, a certain kind of set of consumer practices, the next thing that happens is other banks get investigated for the same thing sure. and, and yeah. more wrongdoings found along those lines. As I read this enforcement action, some of these problems looked like other banks could be committing them, but that they might be unique to Wells Fargo, that they were making these mistaken assumptions about who owed what. And um, that doesn't suggest to me necessarily that J.P. Morgan's doing this exact same thing. Um, and uh, at any rate, I don't expect the, the Bureau to necessarily do a sort of um, you know, industry-wide investigation um, based on what it's found from Wells Fargo. So, um, so that's maybe a roundabout way of saying I'm not sure if we'll see more enforcement activity from the Bureau of this sort, um, uh, whether other agencies um, do uh, to sort of take up the consumer protection mantle for their own reasons. We'll see. Chris? Well, my hope is that the the career staff at the CFPB are continuing to do their work and 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 are continuing to focus on protecting consumers. In addition to the the lack of will at the CFPB in terms of leadership, I also think another variable on the horizon is the potential for um, legislation that's pending in Congress, which is something to keep its eye on. The the Senate has already adopted a significant deregulation bill, and we're waiting from the House of Representatives to see what what they will do in response to that. But there are a number of different bills floating around that would significantly weaken the ability of the CFPB to do this sort of a case. Right. Uh, and, and I think that that's something else that, that I think is also potentially going to cast a shadow over whether or not we can expect these kinds of cases in the future. And again, the way for you to join in by phone is 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We're talking about Wells Fargo and the $1 billion fine that they were assessed uh, just a few days ago. Craig is in Nashville, Tennessee. Craig, go ahead. Yeah, I was just wanted to ask your guest a question. He'd mentioned that the oversight of the CMP beats um, doesn't really apply to smaller financial institutions. What what determines where they start and stop? Of course, I mean, is it probably like healthcare where if the fines don't exceed, you know, multiple, you know, six figures or more, they're not going to be, it's, it's just not worth their time? Or well, what, why is it one, you know, what's the demarcation okay. of when they get involved? Chris? Yeah, so it's, it's complicated, and it all came out of a big compromise in Congress. Uh, so all the different banks and credit unions and also non-bank financial companies in the country have to comply with federal statutes that Congress passed, and also the CFPB implements the regulations that interpret those, uh, uh, interpret those laws. But then in terms of enforcement and supervision, the CFPB has 
supervisory and enforcement jurisdiction over banks or credit unions that have more than $10 billion in total assets. So that count, that adds up to be about six credit unions, the six largest credit unions in the country, and about a hundred and, oh, I want to say 120 or so, 130 largest banks in the country. And there are about 5,000 uh, banks and about 5,000 or more credit unions in the country. But then the CFPB also has enforcement jurisdiction over non-bank companies, things like debt collection agencies, payday lenders, mortgage brokers, credit reporting agencies. And that enforcement jurisdiction exists independent of their size. So the CFPB can bring an enforcement action against a very small payday lender, but cannot bring an enforcement action against a very small um, uh, bank or credit union. Craig, thanks very much for the call. Again, 844-WHARTON is the number for you to join in, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I I think the expectation, David, for a lot of people would be that we will continue to see, despite what happens with the fine here of Wells Fargo, we will unfortunately continue to see this industry – potentially have missteps like this until we see some sort of even more significant uh, action come forward. Yeah, you wonder what's going to happen next. Um, uh, One maybe problem that's exacerbated all this is that these big banks have gotten, you know, bigger and bigger and they're cross-selling services. And so they're playing more and more of an overall role in, in consumers' lives. And that just makes it more possible for something to go wrong. And the way that regulators have tried to deal with this, as Cindy was saying, or one of the ways, um, as Cindy was saying earlier, is they've they've tried to get a culture of, a different culture into the banks. Um, and if, if banks did sort of treat their customers, uh, put their customers' interests ahead of their own, or um, uh, took on new sorts of uh, con- sort of consumer-friendly or consumer-protective responsibilities, that might make a difference um, and lead to less of this kind of enforcement action. But it's really hard to change a culture. Um, it's a multi-year process, as even the most avid regulators have, have suggested, and who knows whether it'll work. We're a long way from the years where banks were you know, mutually owned or, yeah. um, uh, or, or anything like that. That might lead to a different set of incentives. Um, but uh, none of the large banks who most of us bank with these days uh, uh, look like that kind of an institution. And so changing a culture means sort of asking them to think differently about the profit motive that animates them. And that, that's hard to do. Cindy? One thing I've been wondering with these consent decrees, uh, they always include a neither admit nor deny guilt. And I've wondered if the government pushed more for an admission of what went wrong, if that might, I don't know, help change the culture, at least have folks thinking about it in a different way than thinking about, well, if we get caught, it's a fine and we'll negotiate it and we'll move on. Chris, thoughts on that? It's a tough call. Uh, I mean, you, you know, we, we talked about that when I was at the CFPB's enforcement office. And one of the downsides about um, uh, trying to get those uh, admissions of guilt, it exposes the, the, the bank or the financial company to potential shareholder liability uh, lawsuits and other class action lawsuits. Um, and it can be very difficult to try and get the bank to agree to that kind of a provision. And if you're, if you're, if you're not willing to sort of agree to that as the regulator, then the amount of 
time that you may have to invest into that enforcement case could, you know, more than double, triple, or even more. In fact, you may end up being, you know, forcing the bank to go to trial. I'm not opposed to that. I think that we probably should be doing more trials at the government. The government should be doing more of those things. Um, but I, I do think that there is a real resource um, uh, uh, question about whether or not you wouldn't be missing out on a lot of other potential enforcement cases by uh, fighting over that one particular provision. So I, I do think it's a tough call. It's a reasonable point to make. But I do think that, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit harder to see the potential trade-offs. Like, how many cases would you give away in order to fight for that one provision against one, one financial institution? Personally, I, I tend to be a little bit skeptical of that as a, a silver bullet. David? Um, yeah, the resource allocation is a constant problem. Um, right now, it seems like bureau enforcement um, uh, officers aren't doing much at all. Um, they're being kept on the sidelines these days. But um, uh, uh, as far as uh, admit nor deny settlements is concerned, um, uh, it could affect um, uh, the CFPB targets a little differently than the SEC's targets. They've tried to get more sort of admissions of guilt in there. Um, and and those, uh, those cases have been hard to um, get, uh, uh, you know, defendants to agree to. Um, but they made a little progress on that. Uh, not a ton, but a little. And uh, they're the only agency that's really tried it. Uh, maybe others should. Great having you all with us today. Thank you very much for your time. David, as always, great seeing you for coming in. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Christopher, uh, Cindy, thank you very much for your time on the phone today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both. David Zaring, Associate Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. Christopher Peterson, Law Professor at the University of Utah. And also, as we mentioned, Senior Fellow at the Consumer Federation of America. And Cindy Scapani, Professor of Business Administration and Professor of Business Law at the University of Michigan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 